All right, good evening once again. We're going to be in the book of Revelation chapter 20, so if you have a Bible, let's turn there. Revelation 20 and verses 1 through 6 is what we're going to read. Verses 1 through 3 is what we're going to kind of focus on for this week and next week, which tells us what? It's a lot of stuff (laughs) to deal with. In this chapter, I'm getting a little bit upset with my notes here because my uh, notes need to stay on and they keep turning off. And that's not good. All right, I think they're on. Revelation chapter 20. For all intents and purposes, we have come through now, through the majority of the book of Revelation, and through the time of great tribulation. The vision that John was given by God has brought him to record all of the things that are yet to happen and will happen for a few reasons. The most important reason is because God's Word is true. One thing that we have worked on throughout our time in the book of Revelation is is getting beyond the the thinking as some do today that the book of Revelation is too hard to understand and therefore we have to look at it more figuratively uh, rather than literally. What we have discovered over 19 chapters is that it's all pretty much literal. Because it deals with the consummation of the ages. It deals with God coming to grips with everyone and everything and, and just bringing all accounts to bear. It deals with the issue of a nation called Israel, which by the way you've been seeing a lot of in the news. And realizing that they are, as always, hated by the world, which the Bible has told us it would happen, treated as if they were the aggressors, as the Bible has said many times that it would happen. And the church itself being treated very similarly as the scripture says would happen. And the very reason why that is happening, not only because of what the Lord has said is going to happen prophetically, 
But because from the very beginning there has been also an influence by an evil person, an evil presence. We have come to meet him as the serpent of old. We have called him Satan. We have called him the devil. God recognizes him in the book of Revelation and a few other places as the dragon. And we'll see those designations as well in this chapter. When we first meet him, we see him actually in the garden in chapter 3 of the book of Genesis. Already with one intention in mind, and that is to destroy what God has created to be good. And he got his foothold into the lives of the two people that God created and placed in the garden. Got them to doubt the Word of God. To doubt the God that created them and gave them life and gave them everything that they had. And through temptation got them to disobey God. And this is where man has been and where his condition has been now for over for 6,000 years. But as we get to the 20th chapter of the book of Revelation, God is now going to deal with the enemy. But the enemy continues to do his work until that day, because that day is yet to come. The comfort for us is knowing that God is not going to give him any breaks. His end is going to come because God says it would. And we're shown how in this passage. So Revelation chapter 20, beginning with verse 1, we're going to read the first six verses. and get a sense of what we're looking at in the next few weeks. It says, Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, having the key to the bottomless pit, and a great chain in his hand. He laid hold of the dragon, that serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. And he cast him into the bottomless pit and shut him up and set a seal on him so that he should deceive the nations no more till the thousand years were finished. But after these things he must be released for a little while. And I saw thrones, and and they sat on them, and, and judgment was committed to them. And then I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for their witness to Jesus and for the word of God, who had not worshipped the beast or his image, and had not received his mark on their foreheads or on their hands, and they lived and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. But the rest of the dead did not live again until the thousand years were finished. This is the first Resurrection. Blessed and holy is he who has part in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power, but they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him a thousand years. 
Now what did you find to be very common in those verses? But the mention of a period of time. A thousand years. Okay, that was a big hint. As we say, it was a hintazo. A big hint. We're going to focus our attention on what is called the millennial reign of Jesus Christ on the earth that follows His second coming at the end of the Great Tribulation. It is important to mention that there are a number of people in the church who do not hold to a literal interpretation of this passage and thus they deny the literal thousand year reign of Jesus which brings to mind this story. A Jewish man, being in the company of a Christian, took up a New Testament and opened it to Luke chapter 1, verses 32 and 33. So you will know what they say. It says, He will be great and will be called the Son of the Highest, speaking of Jesus, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. Notice I underline this passage so you'll know what passage this Jewish man was was going to bring to, to mind to the other person, the Christian. The Lord God will uh, give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Now, turning to his Christian friend, the Jewish person asked him, How do you understand that scripture? Now, Christian, you need to understand this question. It's not just a story. But it's, something, it's somewhat of a, of a lesson for us. The Jewish man asked the Christian, How do you understand that scripture? And the Christian answered him and said, Oh, that's figurative language, descriptive of Christ's spiritual reign over the church. Then you do not take it literally, asked the Jewish person. Then you don't take it literally. And the Christian said, certainly not. And then the Jewish man made this further remark. He said to the Christian, then why should you expect me to take literally what precedes this, where the scripture says that the son of David shall be born of a virgin? It's verse 31, by the way. Why should you expect me to take literally what precedes where the scripture says that this son of David shall be born of a virgin? Do you believe that literally? And the Christian answered, surely. And the Jew continued, why do you accept verse 31 as literal, but explain verses 32 and 33 as figurative? And the Christian answered, Because verse 31 has become fact. Jesus was born. It is indisputable evidence. Ah, said the Jew. I see. You believe the scriptures when you see them fulfilled. I believe them because they are the word of God. Now the question is, who was right, both in principle 
and in truth. The Jewish man said, I believe because they are the word of God. This is one of the struggles that we have today in the church. Where theologians have taken the word of God and they say, well, this language here is a little too figurative. It's too spiritual. You know, look at all of these things that we have dealt with. And how did we deal with with it all earlier? We said, yes, there's figurative language, but it points to a reality. It points to a literal fulfillment. But too often people say, well, this is literal and this is not. Therefore, I believe the literal because it's become true. And this other stuff, well, it's just spiritual, spiritualizing. That's a big problem, folks. And we've talked about it already in our study of the book of Revelation. But it's an interesting question. Who was right in principle and truth? And I think one that it's a question that can be easily answered for us. Because in Revelation chapter 20, and I want you to look at this, and I've already referred to it. In Revelation chapter 20, we see the literal number 1,000 spoken of six times in just 15 verses, or once every two and a half verses. We see the literal number 1,000. This is not symbolic, but literal. As we shall see this evening. In fact, the millennial reign of Christ is the fulfillment of what the Hebrew prophet said would take place. Jesus will rule and reign from the throne of David. Let's start with that first. Jesus will rule and reign from the throne of David as part of the Davidic covenant given by God himself to David through the prophet Nathan we are told in 2 Samuel chapter 7 verses 12 through 17 listen to what it says again the prophet is speaking to David when your days are fulfilled and you rest with your fathers I will set up your seed after you who will come from your body and I will establish his kingdom stop there and think of Genesis 3 again Verse 15, that speaks about the seed of the woman. The very purpose of bringing a Messiah, a Savior, a Redeemer into this world because of the sin of man, man following after the devil, following after his deceptions, falling to them, and then, in in, in essence, just disobeying God. And there was now a need. Man was now dead dead in spiritual life and would become dead physically as well. God did not create man to be dead, but to be alive. So the promise, think about the promise. Think about the seed. I will set up your seed. That's singular in the, in the Hebrew. I will set up your seed after you who will come from your body and I will establish His kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he shall be my son. If he commits iniquity, I will chasten him with the rod of men and with the blows of the sons of men. 
but my mercy shall not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I removed from before you, and your house and your kingdom shall be established forever before you. Now just so you'll not, uh, don't get too confused here, but remember there are many kings between David and Jesus. There's not going to be any worry that Jesus is going to falter or fail when he comes. All the other kings, David, man, sinned, Solomon sinned, all, even all the good kings, you know, they had their troubles. So just, just remember that. It's, it's talking about this whole passage toward the fulfillment and the utter fulfillment, complete fulfillment. Your house and your kingdom shall be established forever before you. Your throne shall be established forever according to all these words and according to all this vision. So Nathan spoke to David. It came from the prophet who heard from God to speak to David. Now, the word millennium. This is what we're dealing with tonight. The word millennium came back into common usage as we were approaching the year 2000. How many of you remember that 14 years ago? We were all worried about Y2K, right? We were all worried that our computers were going to, you know, go crazy. And then we were just, you know, on, on, on January the 1st, right, you know, at midnight, uh, in the year 2000, man, everything was going to go crazy. We are going to lose our lights and we are going to lose our food. And we had people, you know, going up into the mountains and digging holes and digging, you know, survivalists and all kinds of stuff going on. Oh, you know. And then we're all watching our computers on that, that 1999, December 31st, 1999, and we're waiting. And then all of a sudden, you know, we're looking at, at, at uh, I think it was Sydney, Australia, which was the first one. And we said, let's see if anything happens. Maybe their lights will all go out. Nothing's going to work. And all of a sudden, the next thing you know, fireworks and lights and everything. Oh, God. We made it. Okay. They made it. I don't know about us. And then we went, you know, one time frame after another, you know, until it got to us and we were okay. Uh, we were so worried about Y2K. I used to tell people, we 2K. What are you worried about? God's in control. We need to be more concerned with J1K. Jesus coming again. All right. Millennium. You know, it's a Latin word whose prefix, mille, means a thousand. Literally a thousand. And anum is year, so that's where the word millennium comes from. Thousand years. So people were talking about the year 2000 marking the beginning of this new millennium. But for us as believers in Jesus Christ... We speak of a very particular millennium. We speak of a 1,000 year period during which Jesus Christ reigns on the earth as King of Kings. That's what we're getting to. That's, that's where we're at here in the Scriptures now. Now the word millennium is not found in the Bible itself. The word millennium, of course, is from Latin. So it's not found in the Hebrew or Greek. But it's Greek equivalent the Greek equivalent is kilioi etos. Kilioi etos means a million, or I'm sorry, a thousand years. Not a million, it's a thousand years. And that phrase appears, as I said, six times in chapter 20 of the book of Revelation. We see it in verse 2. I think you've already read it a few times, right? Verse 2, verse 3, verse 4, verse 5, verse 6. 
And then we didn't read verse 7, but verse 7 has it also. A thousand year, a thousand year. Kilioi etos, kilioi etos, kilioi etos, kilioi etos. Still, as I mentioned before, many Bible interpreters have rejected the idea that there will be a reign of Christ on the earth for a thousand years after His coming, desiring, in essence, to eliminate a literal millennial reign. It's not really going to be a thousand years. It's just, you know, He's just going to reign. That's just figurative. It's just spiritual. Well, generally there are three viewpoints to the millennium, and each has a number of variations. We'll just deal with with each of these very quickly. There's something called amillennialism. Amillennialism, which is, in fact, you know, when you see an A in front of a word, especially in the Latin, it it kind of means not. So this is like not millennialism. <laughs> they don't believe in a millennial reign or a thousand year reign, a literal thousand year reign. But amillennialism does hold to the literal coming of Christ. I mean, they say, you know, Christ is going to return, but its chief weakness is that it spiritualizes a year or the thousand years as it does most of the book of Revelation. Most amillennialists just consider the book of Revelation as all Figurative. It's not really going to happen. Christ is going to come, but all of this is just stuff to kind of encourage us to be right and be good people and to be right Christians and all of that. But no, these things aren't going to happen this way. And then there is another view called post-millennialism. Now, what does post mean? It means after, right? So uh, it means after millennialism or post-millennialism. And uh, post-millennialism does not deny that there will be a literal return of Christ. They also believe that Jesus is coming, uh, nor that there will be a, a literal millennium on the earth. But it assumes falsely here that Christ does not come back until the conclusion of a thousand years. So they're actually saying, yeah, there was going to be a thousand years, but Jesus isn't coming until the end of the thousand years. And why do they believe that? Because they have this idea that man is going to usher in the kingdom through his own efforts. Man is going to build the kingdom. And then once we have it right, then Jesus will come. Have we ever gotten anything right in and of ourselves? Can you look at the world today and say that somehow we're all going to get it right? Let's, let's take, for example, this great uh, organization that we all just love called the United Nations. We all just love them, right? They're seeking peace. They're saying that man can make peace. We can do peace. Has, have they accomplished it yet? They certainly have a funny way of accomplishing it. Most of the nations in the United Nations are the ones condemning Israel for everything that's going on over there in Gaza today. They condemn them for everything. Sometimes they just condemn them for waking up in the morning. That's about the way they are. Is man ready for peace? Is man going to bring peace? We're the, most, we're, we're the most technically sophisticated society ever. Has that brought any peace? We're all on the internet. We should have internet peace. 
Even the internet destroys lives, doesn't it? So that's kind of weird. Man's going to usher the kingdom through his own efforts until, and then Christ will come. Then Christ, well, you guys clean it up and then I'll come. Where do they get that from the scriptures? They, they actually uh, will give some scriptural references, but they're, they're really mostly taken out of context, and we don't want to spend a lot of time on that. Now, there is a third, and this is what we here believe in what is called pre millennialism. Pre millennialism. Revelation 20, first of all, this is the school of thought that takes. The position that Revelation 20 must be interpreted literally. And so the thousand years are treated as a thousand years. What a novel idea. The thousand years will be treated as a thousand years. Christ will return to the earth at the close of Daniel's 70th week before the millennium. And we've talked about these prophecies in Daniel 7 and Daniel 9. So I'm not going to go back right now. But there can be no kingdom on earth. There can be no kingdom on earth until Christ the King returns and Satan is removed from the earth. Now this we hold to be the true biblical position. Now just for the sake of understanding the differences here... The amillennialists, the first group that we saw that are not millennialists, they don't believe that Jesus will come at any before or after or whenever. He is coming, but, but not for a thousand years. They don't see the, the literalness of that. But the amillennialist who attempts to spiritualize the thousand years will defend their position by quoting a couple of verses. Some of you know these verses. For example, Psalm 90 verse 4. They quote this and they say, Well, see what it says? For a thousand years in your sight are like yesterday when it is past and like a watch in the night. In other words, it's a short period of time. Or they'll use the other classic verse of Scripture, which is Second Peter 3, verse 8. But, beloved, do not forget this one thing, that with the Lord one day is a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. Oh, listen, do you see that? I mean, I mean there's, there's no way to say that there's a thousand years that is going to happen, that Christ is going to reign for this long. But I want you to notice something. If you go back to the other verse... It says, a thousand years in your sight, speaking to God. This is God's way of seeing things. In God's sight, yeah. In God's sight, the day is like, uh, like a watch in the night. It's a short time for God. But, oh, by the way, in Second Peter, it says, uh, Beloved, do not forget this one thing, that with the Lord, you see that? With the Lord, one day is as a thousand years. The Lord, not you and me. Because for us, a thousand years is a thousand years. And a thousand years as one day is to the Lord. So it is true that a thousand years is is a watch and is one day in God's sight. But it's only with Him. It is not so with us. The scriptures were written for us to whom a thousand years means A thousand years. Now, the time of the millennium is given to us by the Lord Jesus Himself. So turn to Matthew chapter 24. The time of the millennium. Consider this. 
Matthew 24, verses 29 and 30. Jesus said immediately after the tribulation, what does that tell you? Immediately after the tribulation. That's not very hard to understand. I mean, uh, there's no other way to interpret it, but as the way Jesus put it. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars will fall from heaven, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken, and then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man... They will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. Coming immediately after the tribulation. Wow! This is not rocket science. That makes it pretty clear. So when we spiritualize or, or allegorize everything in Scripture, we can dismiss the time frames. But Jesus doesn't dismiss it. And neither does the vision that God gives to John. So the millennial reign, the thousand year, when I say millennial, it means a thousand year reign of Christ begins as it begins the Lord has one of his angels come to bind Satan and cast him into the bottomless pit which we studied before called the abyss the same place those demonic creatures that were likened to locusts in Revelation 9 were kept until God unloosed them upon the world in judgment let's go back to our text in verse 1 then I saw an angel Now, I want you to notice something about this passage. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, having the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand. At one time, the enemy had the key. But he doesn't anymore. An angel does. But he not only has the key, he has a great chain in his hand. But don't call that a key chain. It's a key and a chain. And he laid hold of the dragon, that serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. Who did it? An angel. An angel. And he cast him into the bottomless pit and shut him up and set a seal on him so that he should deceive the nations no more till the thousand years were finished. In other words, the thousand years had a beginning and they would have an ending. It would start and end when? A thousand years later. But after these things, he must be released for a little while. That's going to be the tough part of our study later on. Why am I bringing attention this way to this passage about the angel 
and what he does to the devil. Well, first of all, it is so essentially significant that the enemy of our souls, the enemy of our faith, has done all that he can to grasp at the substance of power and can only come up touching its shadow. That's about it. As Donald Gray Barnhouse put it, he said, Dust has been the serpent's meat throughout all the centuries. Dust has been the serpent's meat throughout all the centuries. What was it that God said to the serpent he was going to be doing the rest of his life? He'd be crawling in the dust. Yet he wanted power. Yet he sought after power. And he had some sense of power yet. He was given and allowed some power to be called the prince of the power of the air in some places, right? The book of Ephesians. But as one cannot learn from his defeats, he continues to malign with venomous enmity until the very end. Let's remember who we're dealing with. Remember what was said of that fallen angel we call Lucifer, son of the morning, that we've tied actually into Allah worship back a few months ago when we were studying this earlier on. Isaiah 14 verse 13. For you have said in your heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will also sit on the mount of the congregation on the farthest sides of the north. Take note of all the I wills. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the Most High. Yet you shall be brought down to Sheol to the lowest depths of the pit. And it is in our text that we see a divine irony take place in the way that the Lord deals with the enemy. A divine irony. How ironic. Think about this. How ironic. That the one who had been a terror to the nations, the one who had been called the prince of the power of the air, the prince of all demonic forces, will be led captive by one simple, solitary angelic messenger. One simple angel. We don't even get his name. If we had gotten a name, we would think, oh yeah, man, that's a heavy-duty angel. Michael. Michael's a heavy-duty angel. You know, archangel. Got them big wings. Muscles and everything. Gabriel. We have a name. Oh, yeah, we know what they're like. This angel doesn't have a name. It's just an angel. And yet that angel, look at the irony. A simple angel takes care of the devil. Binds him. Takes him into captivity.
It has to be shown to the entire universe that no one has the power to govern apart from God Himself. So God says, your time is up. And this little messenger of mine, I'm going to let him shine. And he's going to put you away. The enemy is called, by the way, by four names. The same names that were given to him in Revelation chapter 12. You remember in verse 9, so the great dragon, notice the, also notice the, um, the order. So the great dragon was cast out, that serpent of old called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. He was cast to the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. The great dragon, that serpent of old, called the devil and Satan. Four names. In that order, same order in Revelation 20. Significant to this is the fact that the rider of the white horse in chapter 19, we studied not too long ago, who we know to be Jesus, that rider also was given four names. Very significant here. You go back to Revelation 19, verse 11. Now I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse. And he who sat on him was called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. Verse 13, he was clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. There's another name. And you can say he was called Faithful, that's one name. He's called True, that's another name. And then he's called the Word of God. That, that We'd say that's three names there. But then you go to verse 16 and it says, And he has on his robe and on his side a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. And that's one name. He's the King of kings and Lord of lords. That's the whole idea here. We could still say he's got four names. Or you could say that he's faithful and true and that's one name and then he's the Word of God and then he's the King of kings and that's one name and he's the Lord of lords. However you want to do it, he's given four names. In comparison, in contrast to the enemy of our faith. And the enemy, by the way, is first called the dragon. He's called that in 12.9, and he's called that here in Revelation 20. He's called the dragon. This designation refers to his connection with earthly administrations and kingdoms through political world powers and their determination to rid the world of the one nation blessed and sanctified by God, the nation of Israel. I think it is significant that we are given that name first for the devil, that he is the dragon. Because you can actually take that, even though he's, he's the serpent in Genesis chapter 3, He reveals what His whole purpose is in in downgrading the Word of God, in bringing doubt to those who are created in the image of God, to say, did God really say that? 
God just doesn't want you to be like Him. He, he knows that, that if you eat of that one fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, that you're going to be just like Him. And He doesn't want that. So, you know, go ahead and do it because then you'll be just like Him. You'll know just like Him and you'll and be just like Him and act just like Him and know everything just like Him. But as soon as they ate of the fruit, they died. Because God said that would happen. On the day that you eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, on that day you will surely die. And literally it means you will begin to die. You will die spiritually immediately, but you will die physically over time. And of course, earlier on, they lived a long, long time before they died, but they died. They died. So all of those temptations, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life. When you read, you know, I tell you what, when you read that Genesis passage, and I want to read it to you here, uh, Genesis 3 verse 15, because I, I don't want you to miss this. But in the beginning in verse 14 it says, Then the Lord God said unto the serpent, Because thou hast done this, Thou art cursed above all cattle, and above all every beast of the field. Upon the, thy belly shall thou go, and thus shalt thou eat all the days of thy life. And I will put enmity, I will put hostility between thee and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed. Right there, it talks about the devil's seed. Between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head, and thou shall bruise his heel. It shall bruise thy head. And when you do a deeper study of this, you realize that this is dealing with governments. And it's dealing with that creation now of all of the the factions that the devil is going to try to create himself to come against the seed of the woman. Because now he's been warned, there is coming one that's going to take care of you. And it is going to come through the line that God has chosen. We all know what line that is, the line of David. Through Seth, Adam, Seth, Noah, and then so on and so forth, all the way down to David. Actually, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Until Jesus. So he has used every way of coming against his seed. And the seed would become a nation before this one true seed would reveal its himself. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. And the government, the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Almighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And it goes on in the next verse to talk about the government's. It's an interesting connection, isn't it? 
So who's in the center stage today? The nation of Israel that's been, at the, that's been in the crosshairs of all of these Arab nations since its modern birth in May of 1948. And from day one, from May the 15th, they have been fighting for their existence. And God has had His hand upon His people. Why? Because literally He has brought the land, the, 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 the nation back into the land for a purpose. And those who deny that are denying the very truth of Genesis chapter 3. Go back to Revelation 12. I'm really hoping to finish this tonight. Revelation 12, verses 1 through 6, Now a great sign appeared in heaven. Remember, this is the prophecy given to John of what has happened already in the past. A great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with a moon under her feet, and on her head a garland of twelve stars. Then being with child, she carried out in, or she cried out in labor and, and in pain to give birth. And another sign appeared in heaven, behold, a great fiery red dragon. Figurative language, but true and literal in its fulfillment. Behold, a great fiery red dragon having seven heads and ten horns and seven diadems on his heads. His tail drew a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth. The, the demons that were the fallen angels. And the dragon stood before the woman who was ready to give birth. The woman, remember the seed of the woman? The woman was ready to give birth to devour her child. The dragon was ready to devour the child as soon as it was born. She bore a male child who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron, and her child was caught up to God and His throne. This is pointing us all the way back, as we said before, to Genesis chapter 3. Who's the child? Yeshua. Who's the woman? Israel. And then the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God that they should feed her there. 1,260 days. You know, that's pretty specific. I'd say that's literal. And we're not going to go back and and, and deal with that because we've already studied that. But the point is, the dragon had a purpose through every nation that could to destroy this one nation. Secondly, the enemy of our souls is called the serpent, that serpent of old. This is a reminder that the enemy has been around and existing since the beginning of human history. But remember this, the enemy is a created being, not a creator. The name, the serpent, suggests his subtle poisons, his crooked and deceiving ways, his deadly malignity. It is as the serpent that he deceives souls. He suggests false doctrines. He suggests unbelief. He brings people to unbelief and presumptuousness into the human heart. 
Even to this day, Satan corrupts the purity of the church. This serpent can still corrupt the purity of the church and deludes men into perverted wisdom. We talked a little bit about that this past weekend with Warren Smith. Paul in 2 Corinthians 11.3 says, But I fear lest somehow, as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, so your minds may be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. Oh, how people have tried to make Christianity much more complicated than it is. And try to make the work of Jesus Christ much more complicated than it is. Satan would love to have us all be kind of complex in our, in our approach to the Lord. Whether by, by legalism or ceremonies or rites or all kinds of other things. But it takes away from the simplicity. Jesus, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world but that the world through him might be saved. And then the word devil, we've got to get to the word devil because it means a slanderer. It means a calumniator, a, a malignant liar. And these have been his chief characteristics from the very beginning. His first suggestions to Eve were full of base aspirations, which are slanders, slurs, and smears. That's all it was in the garden. That's all that Satan did as the serpent. Slandered God, he smeared God, he, he just threw out slurs. Did he really say that? God doesn't want you to, to be like him. And he cast these things upon the Lord God. And even Jesus in John 8, 44 said, speaking actually to religious Jews who were attacking him and criticizing him. He says, you're your father the devil and the desires of your father you want to do. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there's no truth in him. When he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own resources for he's a liar and the father of it. And that is what the word devil means. The slander. And then a Satan. The enemy is, a, is an adversary and an accuser. The word Satan means accuser. Specifically, he is the accuser of the brethren. It is mostly used as his proper name. We try to give him a name, so we give him a name. Call him Satan. But it is the name of a great spirit of evil. It denotes one who lies in wait to entrap, to oppose, to disable, and to bring under condemnation or into disaster. That, that's his whole goal. He has accused and opposed God from the very beginning. So he accused Job and sought to destroy his peace. So he assaulted Jesus, questioning his divine sonship and power, 
And so he is the adversary of all the children of God. And and he still stands as their accuser before God, even when the time comes for their graduation into immortal glory. He continues. He continues to accuse. He continues to slander. Now, some may feel that Satan is bound already. There are, there, there are certain camps in the church, you know, that say, you know, well, Satan's already bound. He's, you know, I don't know about you, but I don't think he's bound yet. All I've got to do is look at the news for one hour, and I just realize he ain't bound. Now, that's not a problem with God, okay? I, please don't think that, you know, that God can't bind him. <laughs> if he send one little angel as he will, as, as we've already seen in verse 1 and 2 of our text. He's, you know, God is allowing what's going on. But here's the point. Some feel that the Satan is bound already, defeated by the Lord at the cross of Calvary. Yes, that's true. Satan has been defeated at the cross of Calvary. Please realize that. And don't let Satan tell you otherwise that... The work of Jesus on the cross was not sufficient enough for you. Yes, it is. The blood of Jesus Christ is sufficient for your salvation. The blood of Jesus Christ is sufficient to wipe you clean of of all of your sins. Don't Don't ever let the enemy confuse you about that. He was defeated at the cross of Calvary, but if Satan is bound today, it must be with a very long chain. For he surely has and is affecting many people's lives today. So understand this. Satan is not yet bound completely. Yes, he can do nothing unless the Lord approves of it and allows it. But Job even spoke of that. Job spoke about it. And Peter warns us about it. Peter in 1 Peter 5 verses 8 and 9 says, Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary the devil walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. That's now. So you have to be awake, you have to be sober, you need to be vigilant. And then he says, resist him. Resist him, Christian. Resist him, believer in Jesus Christ. Resist him, steadfast in the faith. See, this is why it is so important for us to be steadfast in our faith in Christ and steadfast in the Word of God. That's why we need to stay in God's Word. That's why we need to study God's Word. That's why we need to praise God for the Word that He's given us and and, and not put it aside. There is a richness to the Word of God that awakens us to His presence, that awakens us to His power, that awakens us to His purposes, and says to us, listen, I am with you and I'll be with you always, but trust in me and believe in me and know what I'm saying to you. Resist Him steadfast in the faith. You cannot resist Him unless you're steadfast in the faith of Jesus Christ. Knowing that the same sufferings are experienced by your brother, your brethren in, in, in the world, by the brotherhood, all the brotherhood of Christ. And today, so many Christians in other countries are suffering for their faith in Christ. Many have lost their lives in, in the Middle East today. 
being killed by that ISIS group, going throughout, uh, you know, the, the Syrian uh, countryside, going on their way all the way into, into, into Iraq. And not to mention that in other places, Christians are being, are, are being uh, uh, murdered for their faith. Some of the countries in Africa where, where uh, the Islamic uh, terrorists are, are in control of the governments. Christians are dying. This is why we are to be wise. This is why we're to be on guard. This is why we're to resist Him in the faith and remembering this. We must remember this. This, is, this has got to be for us our encouragement before we leave today. And that's what John says to us in 1 John 4, verse 4. He says, You are of God, little children. You are of God, little children, and have overcome them. In other words, you've overcome, as you read the, t- the context, in all these false spirits and the spirit of Antichrist. You have overcome them because He who is in you is greater than He who is in the world. He who is in you is greater. Is Christ in you? The hope of glory is Christ in you. Jesus said, I will not only come, you know, I will not only send you my spirit, and the spirit will not only come alongside of you, but he will come upon you, and he will be in you. And that's the spirit of Christ. So let's not be confused by the spirit of Antichrist. Let's not be confused by the spirit of the enemy who's going to try to come like an angel of light. I mean, we, we didn't even scratch the surface on some of these things tonight about Satan. But the Bible is very clear that many times he deceives by appearing like an angel of light. Well, that's the way the devil is. That's how he deceives. But greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. Therefore, when we are in touch, when we are in fellowship, when we are in communion with God and with Christ in the power of his Holy Spirit and in the wisdom of his word, God gives us that discernment and the light shines And we can say, that's true, that is not. This is right, this is not. This is good, that's evil. I want to stay with what is good. The lines have to be drawn, folks. Because in this world, Jesus said, you will have tribulation. But be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. Be in Christ. Stay in Christ. Be steadfast in the faith and resist the work of the enemy. Let's pray.